Welcome to We the People with Umar Khan. Today's topic is about something that a lot of adults have either seen happen to other people, have heard about it happening to someone they know in their immediate circle or their extended circle, or something that they have witnessed as a point of discussion in their adult life, either in their social circle or their family. And I'm going to start this topic today by sharing some statistics. These numbers I'm sharing come from U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And what it shows is that one in five girls and one in 20 boys is a victim of child sexual abuse. During one year period in the United States, 16% of youth ages 14 to 17 had been sexually victimized. Another one, over the course of their lifetime, 28% of U.S. youth ages to 14 to 17 had been sexually victimized. Then one more is children are most vulnerable to child sexual abuse between the ages of 7 and 13. So now you know that uh, what I'll be talking about today is child sexual abuse and specifically sexual abuse in religious institutes where religious leaders are involved in this activity. And just before getting into that, I'm just going to go through briefly on what child sexual abuse is or sexual abuse is. The Webster Law Dictionary defines it as the infliction of sexual contact upon a person by forcible compulsion or the engaging in sexual contact with a person who is below a specified age or who is incapable of giving consent because of age or mental or physical incapacity. Specifically, since I'm talking about sexual abuse in context of religious leaders or religious institutions, and one of the articles I looked at, uh, this I'm referring to the Buffalo News, uh, published August 16, 2019, there were 105 Child Victims Act lawsuits against religious organizations in the Western New York area in the first two days that those cases could be filed. Now, surprisingly, only two of them targeted religious organizations that were not Catholic. Now, what's surprising here is out of those 105, only two lawsuits were not against the Catholic institutions. By saying that, I am not suggesting that this only happens in that part of our society, that part of our community. I am actually referring to the Muslim community, the Islamic community, Islamic centers that we have is what the scope of my conversation is. And we'll get to that in some more detail. Before we get any further, I'd like to touch base on some consequences of sexual abuse. And those could be health consequences, psychological consequences, and how it impacts the overall personality of an individual. Once mind is messed up, that impacts the rest of the body because all the cues, all the decision-making is going from the central nervous system into all the organs. And once that is that has some bug, then that will cause other systems to also not respond or not communicate the right way. Uh, there can also be gynecological disorders. An individual could just start feeling depressed, uh, feeling guilty, feeling uh, alone, not wanting to talk to anyone, okay? Even if uh, there is a party going on, but an individual just seems like not being able to fit in. Also, symptoms associated with PTSD, 
such as re-experiencing or avoidance. So in terms of avoidance, I mean, you just withdraw yourself from your colleagues, your friends, your relatives, because you feel that there is something that is missing from your personality. And that is why, that is why I will be speaking with a few folks who've actually either have had professional experience or uh, experience in regards to how these cases or these situations impact individuals as opposed to me just talking. Then there are also social competence. I mean, I may not be able to carry a conversation to a certain degree. I may just uh, start a conversation, initiate a conversation, and then after a certain point, I would just give up or not be able to complete that conversation. I may just seek shelter utilizing substance abuse because everything else seems to not working because I am thinking in my head that no one else is either trying to understand or does understand my mental state as to what I am going through at this point in time. So there are a few things that can uh, go wrong in terms of consequences that an individual who has been subject to sexual abuse can experience or can go through. Now, the reason I am doing this series, this brief series, is because of two cases that I came across and also growing up mental health, anything to do with mental well-being in my culture, Pakistani culture, um, and a broader Muslim society has been a taboo because a lot of times we hear from our elders, hey, you know what? Just pray. Just uh, go pray, go perform evolution and just pray. Allah will guide you. Yes, indeed, that is the case. But with that, you also have to cater to the mental well-being of an individual. You also have to cater to the greater community well-being. And that can only be done when conversations take place in this capacity. So the two cases that I'd like to mention First one was in Houston. It happened. Muhammad Omar Ali, he had been uh, followed for a few years before finally being arrested. And uh, there were complaints against him that uh, he had allegedly, uh, he had performed sex crimes against children. And uh, this was a uh, Fort Bend County Sheriff's Office. Uh, they had finally arrested him, uh, Islamic uh, religious teacher. Muhammad Omar Ali, he was 59, and he was charged with one count of sexual assault of a child and three counts of sexual indecency of a child, following January 3 arrest. That was last year. Turns out that he had been doing that. He had actually approached different families in Houston areas, and he offered them to teach Quran uh, to their children. And that is how he was invited to their homes. He was released on bail for 125000 but uh, it then turned out that he was also present in this country illegally. So not only he did all these crimes, he performed all these criminal activities, but also he was present in this country illegally and he did not have lawful presence. So, so how did it happen that an individual not only became part of the community, despite his legal status in the country, but also got to a point where he was able to get inside the homes of uh, these uh, children, 
mingled with these families and ended up exploiting these families. And uh, the president of Islamic Society of Greater Houston, he actually said, Suhail Sayyid, that uh, Ali has not been a volunteer or an employee of any of the facilities. So he wasn't acting in any official capacity on behalf of the Greater Houston Islamic Society. So that also begs to ask another question is then how did the community allow such things to happen? Or another question might be, how did it get to that point that families were so easy to grant access to a complete stranger if he was not a volunteer in any official capacity or employee of any of the sub-societies of the Greater Houston Islamic Society in official capacity? Those are the questions that one would want to ask. And as I had mentioned before, surveillance of Ali began back in September 2019 after victims reported of uh, this abuse to the FBI. So it took them good six years before they finally arrested him. So there are these questions, and uh, there are a few more that I'm going to ask towards the very end because that is the segue I would like to use for my next conversation with one of the professionals that I'll be talking to. Now, the second case is kind of close to home. This happened in Dallas-Fort Worth, in North Texas, where I reside. And this was at one of the biggest, one of the oldest Islamic centers here in North Texas. This is uh, Sheikh Ziaul Haq. He was the imam at the Irving Islamic Center. Now, what happened there was that Imam Ziaul Haq Sheikh, he had been teaching Quran at the center, and uh, he started uh, working with one of his students. So at that time, she was 13, and this, uh, everything happened. He was finally arrested uh, back in 2019, and uh, charges were filed, and case was settled back in uh, 2019. Uh, by settled, I mean uh, there was a decision in that case. So all this happened six years prior. So the defendant, Jane Doe, they used, from the age of 13 till she turned 19, she had become emotionally, spiritually dependent on Imam Zial Haq Sheikh for guidance, for teachings, for learning, because there was no father figure in the household. And over the course of those uh, six years, he had been grooming her to leading her finally into uh, coming to a local motel where he allegedly had sex with her. And after that, he completely parted ways. He stopped communicating with her. He did not have any contact with her after that. What's more surprising in this whole saga is that the folks who found out about this happening, the leaders of the Islamic Society, the leaders of the Islamic Center of Irving, they allegedly did not report this. They got in touch with the parents of Jane Doe, and they started to mediate this process. Instead of reporting this to the law enforcement, they decided to take matters into their own hands. So they became complicit in this act, in this shameful act, or in this shameful criminal act. And instead of making sure that there was a precedent set, by reporting that individual who happened to be a leader of the community, 
who happened to be leader of one of the biggest communities in North Texas. Instead of reporting him and setting a precedent, they tried to protect him. And even after this got the word got out onto social media and everywhere, they still tried to protect him. Even one of uh, the local imams who was a convert, Imam Nick, when he finally presented a khutbah one Friday, he was let go. Well, the reasons that were cited for his departure was that he had used inappropriate words during his khutbah, which based on everything that I've read, everything that I've researched, he suggested how not to allow your children to fall into this trap of child sexual abuse. And the content of that khutbah is also available online if you just go on Facebook or YouTube and just search for Imam Nick Irving Islamic Center khutbah, you will be able to find that video. After charges had been filed, he was finally let go off. He was hired by another local Islamic Center, Grand Prairie Masjid, and he had been working there since May 2018. He eventually had to resign from that Islamic Center also. He parted ways. They were not able to comment on the reasons of his departure from that Islamic Center. But uh, the only thing that was said was that it was an amicable departure and uh, they could not discuss anything. So what I'm trying to say here is, why do we have a pattern of ignorance towards such actions, towards such events taking place within our community, importantly, but more important than that, that take place under the very watchful eyes of our community leaders. Why does it happen? And when it gets out in the open, instead of setting an example, instead of setting a strong precedent, why does the Muslim community leadership not act collectively so as to safeguard our future generations? Yes, I have uh, those questions also. I also have a few other questions because looking at these two cases, and these are recent cases within last 18 to six months. So my few questions in this case, where does accountability lie from an organizational perspective? Is it the leadership of the Islamic Center? Is this the leadership of that community, that city? How do we tackle also another aspect, the illegal employment issue? If that individual, Muhammad Ali, was in this country illegally, and if he was part of the community where he might have been working, where he might have been soliciting some business, but his status was not legal, how do we work with that fact and work with law enforcement agencies? Because at the end of the day, if my business ends up hiring him, and if I have not done my due diligence, then I am as complicit in the, that act as Muhammad Ali is. So where does that responsibility lie? What can the community leadership do about this? Once someone brings this piece of information to me, and I am leader of a community, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to move forward with this? Am I just supposed to sit and do nothing? Or should I engage the relevant authorities? Should I engage law enforcement agencies? Should I engage our community mental health experts? Or should I also engage our child services agency experts? There is some sense of responsibility that is lacking here, that we do not see here. How can community leadership ensure illegal immigrants are not employed? If at all, that is the truth. That is something that we need to find out. That is something the entire community needs to work together. 
And if that is the case, then how does the community leadership work with different businesses, with the community businesses to ensure that rightful applicants are hired, competent applicants, legal applicants are hired, and they are given due benefits. Are there also businesses who want to undermine the pay structure just so that they can, they don't have to extend those benefits by just paying under the table? Does that onus lie on the businesses or the community? That's also another question. What steps have been taken since these two cases have come to light to ensure such is not repeated within our communities? Have you heard of any Islamic centers prepared any workshops, any awareness, any children awareness programs, any parent awareness programs in context of child sexual abuse? Have you heard about that? If you have, please do let me know. What steps have been taken collectively to ensure that such perpetrators are not protected by community elders, but are reported and punished? Now, this is a very serious problem because uh, folks in these two cases, especially in the case of uh, Imam Ziaul Haq Sheikh, it was the community elders. It was the board of governors of Irving Islamic Center, based on everything that I've read online, that protected the imam. And they just wanted this resolved through mediation as opposed to reporting it. How does community leadership ensure that this does not happen again? And individuals who become complicit in this act are punished. If anyone has answer to this, I would love to hear from you. What specific awareness and education platforms have been established for this aspect of our Muslim community? Going back to, have there been any programs? Have there been any awareness uh, seminars held? If there have been, we need to make sure that these conversations are made public. We need to ensure that these conversations are increased exponentially in an organic manner. It should not happen that if such case, if something like this happens, only then we start talking, only then we become keyboard warriors. This should be an organic growth. And what steps have we taken to provide for mental health support to the community members at large? Have we at all done anything like this? So these are questions that I wanted to ask you all. If you should go back and listen to all these questions and see to what extent you're able to answer these questions. Because if the answer to most of these questions is, I don't know, then we have not done anything concrete towards collective improvement of our community. Plus, then we have failed our children as elders and we have lost the right to lead them into the new age. But it's never too late. We can still work on this and we can still make that turn. And the next few pages that we write in this story can be those of purpose, those of perseverance, those of clarity of goals and clarity of commitment because we want to safeguard the rights of our children just like we want to safeguard our own economic rights, our own career rights, our own national rights. So if we're able to find any of those answers, and if we are able to, more importantly, have a very objective, very open-minded, and a respectful conversation that is just not about me too, but more about how can we make sure it does not happen again to anyone else, then we have taken the right steps in that direction. Think about it.
my next episode, I will be speaking with uh, one of my guests about this. Stay tuned. I hope you join me on that episode also. This is We the People with Umar Khan, where we're talking about sexual abuse and our religious institutions and religious leadership.